how do I get out of my own head? I know that I know how to physically do this. And I know that we have the equipment to do this. What am I doing wrong? Welcome to Class Racing Today. I'm Brian Anderson. I'm here today with Robert Fezio. Probably killed that, Robert, but that's all right. Um, we got, got Mike Manz <laughs> with us here. We're just going to talk class racing and kind of what happened on the weekend. And what state could you not race stock on this weekend? Like, it was crazy the amount of races that were happening. It was literally races from coast to coast and multiples in both locations and <laughs> a lot of locations. Yes. Divisionals and uh, associations, too, I believe. Yeah, nowadays, like in the Midwest, we've got a lot of association races that are uh, they're really well attended. Brian, Brian and I race in a handful of the same kind of events. Um, and it's not uncommon to have 60 to hundred cars at a stock super stock combo race. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of, uh, strong attendance out here. You know, it's seen here. Yep. Sorry, Brian. Go ahead. No, that's fine. It's kind of interesting. Like as a newbie, not really knowing anything about drag racing in my second year into the class, basically drag racing ever. It's crazy to me. Like I think in the Midwest here, we have a pretty solid chapter, I'd say. And you just kind of assume it's like that everywhere. But, yeah, you know, I'll talk to people like, oh, how many cars you were? It's like, oh, there was only like 60. You know, I think it was kind of a low attended event. And everybody's like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> and we're just, we're kind of cushioned here to, I think we just have a really successful organization. Yeah, it takes, I mean, I've, I've been, I've been around stock, super stock, you know, my whole life. And my parents have always had some level of involvement in usually some type of a side association. You know, many years ago, there was uh, in this state, you know, they started, I mean, they were in their twenties. They started a group called uh, the Midwest uh, stock, super stock association. Then there was Midwest drag racers association. They were a part of some of that. Um, and then for a long period of time, there was a group called the United stock super stock association, the USA group. Um, and now there's <clears throat> the Midwest class racers, uh, along with the heartland class racers. So there's, there's always been a stock super stock, like association presence in the area, um, to really help facilitate strong payout events. And I just don't think every region of the country has that because it's, uh, I've seen firsthand, it's a lot of work. Like it's a lot of setup. It's a lot of prep. It's a lot of one way or another raising money whether it's a membership fee or it's a contribution or whatever it is so there's some level of effort that goes into making sure people can uh, go to these races that have good strong payouts and i can second that with the class racer nationals that ken Mealy just put on at new media dragway in pennsylvania yeah. two weeks <clears throat> ago and just me rolling in the gate and paying my entry fee i don't have you know I don't. I have no idea what it was like for him on his side of everything. I'm sure there was so much prep, and he had to find workers. He had to find announcers. You have to hope that your car count is up. And yeah. with with the payout that we had, five thousand to win on Saturday, five thousand to win on Sunday. Stock and super stock were separate classes. They weren't run together, and it was basically just us at the track. It moved so smoothly. Yeah. It moved a little. Honestly, I would say a little too quick at times where I, I felt like I didn't have enough time to cool my car down, but I would sure I would definitely make that sacrifice because <clears throat> it was it was just such a great event and, and so many prizes. Um everybody was winning something. If you lost that round, you nice. you you came out of there with a gift certificate for a good, you know, losing package or a good light or even the the worst light. If you had a terrible light, you won something. <laughs> <laughs> so That's awesome. That makes them a lot of fun. It was it was great. Um, Peter Biondo <clears throat> was doing the announcing and, um, it, it was just a, uh, it was just a great event. So, you know, what's nice. kind of, what's interesting is, uh, as an outsider, not knowing anything about class. And like I said, just getting started, <clears throat> it always cracks me up when they call stalkers, the lanes, right. And nothing happens. Like everybody's looking like, Oh, I can't be first. I can't be first. <laughs> so how does a race with just stock eliminatory cars ever get started? Because nobody ever wants to just pull up in the lanes and get started. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. It was random pairing first round too, so that uh, I yeah. don't know. I I think when it's random pairing and you get to go up there and just pick the lane that you want to run in, I think people kind of just go up a little sooner than they do at a divisional or a national where you have to go up, get paired up, flip your coin, and um, 
you know, you just, you just had two time runs before you went up there where at a national you qualified yesterday and now you're going up today and putting a dial on the window. I think that's also what makes people kind of hang back a little bit, but that's why they invented the uh, designated pairs rule. What was the, uh, what was the acceptance of random pairing? Like were people pretty happy about it or people complain about it or. Well, um, if that's what the way they do it at national opens. So, People are kind of used to that. They also do that at, at our association races in D1. Uh, Dave Lay, our, uh, one of our head tech inspectors, uh, has his own association, East Coast Stock Superstock, and it is random pairing first round. So uh, you're there for fun. You're there to win a couple bucks. <clears throat> it's not – I think on a, uh, a divisional and national level, maybe maybe some of the, the drivers, especially the big-name drivers, I mean they have – points and whatever else on the line maybe they hang yeah. back for that if i ever hang back it's because i'm probably fixing something that wasn't broken <laughs> to begin with or my dad's changing you know the carburetor right before first round to uh send me out there to the wolves so <laughs> you guys would be great four speed people <laughs> oh man well man do you drive a stick shift don't you don't ever say that <laughs> uh, my father my father uh, got the wonderful idea to put a four-speed in his car, and uh, it's <clears throat> it's been an adventure to say the least. I I've always given four-speed drivers that that are successful credit, uh, and and I've greatly increased that amount of credit to the people that do this consistently and, and can win because it's you never know how easy it is to get an automatic car to work, and then get it to repeat it is insanely difficult to be really consistent with a four speed. And, uh, but he's learning, he's having a ball, he loves it. Uh, so that's really all that matters. Yeah. It's, it's such a pain. That's why you're the a stick shootout winner two years in a row, right? <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, that must it's be funny miserable. that that's, that's the, uh, the one race a year that I look forward to have him having a four speed in it. <laughs> <laughs> we had, uh, I mean, that car, so it's a 2000 Pontiac Firebird. So they fit like in automatic, they fit double A through B uh, pretty nat- nicely. And then in stick, it'll fit A, B, or C. And <clears throat> prior to going to the stick, I mean, we ran an automatic for you know a handful of years. And we were building an engine, uh, a new engine that I was hopeful that would be, you know, better, stronger to be competitive in a stock automatic. I knew I'd never, you know, get out there and run with Steve Wan. Uh, run, you know, mid low nine eighties at Indy, but I figured we could put together something that could run maybe lid mid low nine nineties with a stock automatic. And before the motor got done, my dad was like, I'm putting a four speed in this thing. I want to go back to where I started. And, uh, so <clears throat> needless to say, we finished that motor and that was what was at in the car at Indy last year. And, uh, it looked pretty strong. It's got some pretty good steam. And the- I would say that stick shift in stock has to be challenging. I mean, I've run a stick shift in super stock for 11 years now. And with, you know, with the suspension mods that you can sort of make and the bigger tire, obviously. Um, yeah. I would think it's easier when I see a guy with like a 396, you know, 375 horse Camaro out there on a nine inch tire running a stick shift. I, I feel like that would be a little bit more difficult maybe um you know it with is tough. so yeah i give those guys yeah, a heck of a lot of credit <clears throat> absolutely yeah i mean i like i said i always kind of thought you know they kind of they knew something uh, to be able to make those cars work and after doing it uh, they absolutely you know they've worked hard to make those cars work and it's tough like you said with the stock suspension especially in stock with you know leaf spring cars and some of that making that work uh with a nine inch tire and a bunch of torque um it's not easy not at all Mm -mm. so but me personally i i seem to cut better lights with the clutch pedal than i do um holding the brake pedal with a two-step in stock i just feel like the clutch i have my my stop i have the same amount of Leg pressure travel. each time, same amount of yeah. travel. In stock, I don't know if I'm holding it at, you know, 400 pounds of pressure or 500 pounds of pressure. If I'm holding a little bit more, if I'm amped up 
uh, adrenaline pumping, I could be holding it harder, which takes longer to release, which is going to affect my light, maybe even my 60 foot time if it takes the brakes just that much longer to release themselves. Yeah. So um, I don't mind uh, the stick car. I would say it's, maybe it's not as easy as it looks. I, I love when people come up to me and say, hey, you're driving a stick car. And, you know, I've had I've had <clears> some <throat> good fortune in it, but it's really it's not as easy as it looks. So <laughs> it's not. It's not, I, you know, it, it was funny. Like we've made some pretty good runs uh, over the last couple of years, uh, last year, way more sporadically than this year. This year we've, we finally made the car work pretty good, but we'd, you know, we'd struggle, struggle, struggle. And then he'd put up a pretty fast number and people would be like, man, what'd you change? I'm like, he hit the one, two shift. He was 800 <laughs> late every time before this and he hit it right. and it picked up like eight hundreds to three thirty, And it's, it's tough. Like I, I give him a lot of credit cause you know, the way that car worked, I have to turn the shift light on on time because, you know, you're either spinning the tire a little bit and the shift light immediately turns on because you hit the RPM or it pulls the motor down and it, the shift light would be coming on at totally random times and he never yeah. knew when to pull it. So it wasn't really his fault. He wasn't just right. late. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, he didn't know what to do. So finally, you know, being a fuel injected car with a Holly system, I could, I finally figured out how to set up the one, two shift light on time. Right. And now you know, you can hit it pretty well. So, but yeah, I mean, you miss, you miss a shift point with an automatic and you may miss like a couple hundredths uh, with a stick shift, man. I mean, you start windowing the clutch or you yank it too late and it's just locked up and, right. and you're all over the place. Yeah. How hard does that make the car to tune? What happened? Uh, I'm not sure. It's impossible. <laughs> like, it's yeah. impossible to go testing and say we made a difference. It's like, I don't know. You shifted better. It was going to be better no matter what. And the data logger will get you in trouble because you can't hide that <clears throat> from your crew chief where he looks at yeah. your RPM and, and sees, you know, I can't make something up here. I, uh, oh, trust I me. hit it too. I've hit it too early because I'll, I'll be in the middle of a, of a wheelie and I want to hit one, two before the tires touch down. So I don't use a shift light in either car really for, for the one, two shift. That's just based on, my own time clicking in my head or, or sure. where the wheelie is coming down. If it's a high one or if it's not that high, I really don't like to have the tires smack down before I hit the second gear, but then the shift light does take over for me in, in third and fourth. So, sure. but yeah, if you, if you <laughs> miss so. it a little bit, I mean, especially going up against cars that have, you know, super stock air shifters and in yeah. now stock the E shift, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's getting tougher and tougher. It is. I feel like, you know, compared to like, I run in super stock with a modified car with an air shifter, air shifted automatic. I'm like, this is cheating compared to what you're doing with a four speed in stock. You know, this, I, I let go of the button, hold on. And I'm, I can watch my guy the entire way down the track and I don't have to right. worry about the car. And I'm so. letting go of a clutch shifting gears using that shift light for at least two of those shifts and uh looking at the modified car come up on me at 150 miles an hour yeah so yeah. two totally different perspectives in one category yeah exactly i don't think i can go to a i don't think i can go to a race without somebody saying <clears throat> when are you going to put a stick in that i run a 2000 camaro ls1 and everybody's like you got to put a stick in that it's such a better combo you got to put a stick in there it's like I want to at least win one race before I make it any harder. Like <laughs> it already feels impossible some days, but you know, there's some just stick magicians out there. I mean, I don't know what it's like where you're at Bobby, but I mean, there's, I can think of like the name that comes to mind that makes me not want to put a stick in over here is we got a guy by the name of John McLaughlin. And I literally, you would swear his car fell on him because he is under that car every single run. <laughs> sometimes twice like i think he would pull it in and make an adjustment and he's making another adjustment and he just makes it look really hard but like his car can spin and i don't know that the times really change like and i'm i'm new to the game so maybe there's some people out there better but as far as a stick wheel man he's got to be one of the best out there that i've ever seen like i don't know who do you think's the best stick wheel man I'll let Rans go first on that. <laughs> yeah. Brad Zaskowski. Right. He's great. I've that guy uh is deadly. I've uh not well pitted with him, but I've hung with him in in a couple different racetracks and Pomona and um bounced a couple ideas off of him. And yeah, he's definitely a knowledgeable 
Uh, he's a knowledgeable guy. You know, he's given me some uh, clutch heights and things to try um, that I passed on to my father that he's uh, set up for me. And yeah, Brad and his dad. Uh, and yeah, and they hang with Charlie Downing and he has his uh, fair share of uh, fortune as well in his car. Yeah. So are they like, yeah, that burgundy car is good. Are they under the car every run or is it they set it and kind of forget <clears throat> it? Uh, when I was with them, they didn't seem to be. They would they would race, park it, and they seem like they you know they know what they're doing. They didn't look like they had a whole lot of maintenance. Maybe they do you know after the weekend was over. <clears throat> but. Yeah, I mean they show up and they've got their stuff ready to go, and they I don't feel like you know maybe if if something happens in their way off for some reason on the first lick they'll they'll make some changes, but for the most part, I mean their setup's pretty consistent. They don't need to be in the can every every run. It's it's just crazy to me because you see some guys are under there all the time, and there's other guys that are running our class. Like, I think the first time I saw Paul Merrill under his car was Kearney at the end of the year last year, and I'm like, what happened? Like, I've never seen you under here. Like, I see him drive a car or see his car and a little bit of work he has to do to it, and it runs pretty consistent. Like, maybe I could do a stick. Maybe this isn't so bad. Like, once in, once a year, I can handle that. <laughs> and then you see the next guy. It's like we make fun of him all the time. Put your oven mitts on and leave your car alone. Like. That's all the time you're under there messing with it. I'm just like, man, there's so much gotcha. stuff going on. I don't need to make it any harder at this point. Yep. Clutch adjustments are, are my big thing. If it's hard to go from second gear to third gear, then I know I need to take a little bit of clutch out of it. So that's something that we're probably doing like once once a weekend, just a little bit. And as a, especially as the clutch gets hotter, it gets worse, which makes it difficult for me to ever uh, go to some of these um, stock super stock association races um, with the with the stick car because I just feel like I don't have enough time <clears throat> to cool a clutch down. So I yeah. usually just run the stocker at those when I can when I can make it to those. Sure. So at India this year in the A stick shootout, we might as well talk about that a little bit. Uh, tell us what was the atmosphere like compared to pre-pandemic was there same cars that are normally there or what were your thoughts there mike there was a fair amount of the same cars that were normally there um you know as far as like the a stick shootout goes it was it, there was four a stick cars instead of i think like 11 that were there the year prior um <clears throat> so there was definitely cars that that didn't want to you know for whatever reason didn't want to be there um <clears throat> certainly understand that in terms of kind of the different atmosphere, I mean, it was it was definitely different. <clears throat> I mean, you you it was they were constantly over the loudspeaker telling everybody you've got to wear masks. You know, the local county is is enforcing this, and this is the way and the reason we're able to stay open and keep racing. You know, we're really asking everybody to to, to mask up and, and do your part. Um, on the sportsman side. I mean, it was kind of few and far between. You'd see some people wearing masks and, and feeling comfortable with it. And then a lot of people were just going days, uh, you know, life is normal. On the pro side, I think it was far more uh, structured where they'd have masks and because they have, you know, TV cameras on them more regularly and, and things like that. So they kind of have to stay masked up to make sure that they don't get, uh, you know, visibly shown that they're not following rules. But uh, right. yeah, it was different. For sure. I'm guessing I've track, been to Indy a lot. I'm guessing track conditions and everything were pretty similar. Weather was similar. Yeah, I mean, they prepped the track, you know, as good as they normally would. And and uh, the weather was comparable. Indy's, Indy's kind of different, uh, you know, the first day. So, I mean, it, it was far different than normal in the, in the sense of, you know, normally you get two, like in stock, you get two runs on Wednesday, class on Thursday, carried on Friday. Uh, first round Saturday and then the rest of eliminations uh, Sunday and Monday this year being, you know, a condensed format, you've got one time run. You're going to take the two fastest cars from that first time run run class after that. So it doesn't necessarily mean it was the two, the two, ideally the two fastest cars and in a stick, I think it, it ended up being that way, but there was plenty of classes like even in my super stock car um, in the first qualifying run, Justin lamb broke a converter and you know, he was going to be faster in all likelihood, faster than Anthony Bertozzi, but Anthony and I were the two faster cars that ran in the first qualifying run. And we ran, you know, for the class runoff after that. So uh, in terms of a stick, 
I think my dad and, and Caleb McFarland uh, were probably uh, the two faster cars in a stick. Um, and the, the challenge with only getting one run to make sure you're the faster car is, you know, you don't want to do anything stupid um, and lose out on that. Uh, so I think there, I don't, I don't know what any of the other competitors are doing. I think Caleb came up there fully loaded, uh, you know, from what I could tell, and he made a, a heck of a run, the first run down the pat, the track, uh, and definitely put a little fear in us. Uh, I didn't, when he, when he ran 980, uh, I didn't think there was any way we were getting there. I thought we could run a high 80, the way we were set up on the first run and we did, I think we went in 87 and, uh, I didn't think we had that much left to get close to him, but uh, you know, we made, made a handful of changes, kind of tried everything we could and, uh, knock on wood, dad, uh, stole a couple on the tree and, and was able to drive away from there. Was there, uh, any differences from how you ran this year to last year? Like it's pretty similar package or did you change anything? How'd you find the extra? Here's <laughs> that top secret. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not really, um, so over the winter time, I mean, I will say last year, we, we had no, we went to Indy just to be a part of the A-Stick shootout. Like that was a big thing for my dad. He really wanted to be a part of it. You know, he's seen, he's seen, they have this kind of a, a nice thing put together by uh, Jim Schachter and, you know, there's a lot of participants. It's kind of a, a big group thing that everybody seems to really enjoy it. And he wanted to be a, a participant in it. Uh, we really had no idea that we could win it, to be honest. I mean, our car worked like shit. Um, and we struggled all year long trying to make it work. And, um, so, uh, it was just a, a strike of lightning that we ended up putting together a really good run in the semis or in the finals, excuse me. Um, and, and we went a 980. the part that draws a lot of, I think kind of, uh, conversation is in that final round, he went 980 at 140 miles an hour, which, you know, the scoreboard lights up 140, but in. In, in all reality, he did not go 140 miles an hour. He was probably going 137 and change or 138, somewhere in there. In that car, you know, it's we've got the nose fairly low and it'll trip the finish line beam with the with the nose and, and he picked up a couple mile an hour. So it looked better than it was. This year, you know, we, we made a lot of changes in the suspension and shocks and springs and finally made the car work better. Um, but the challenge was we ended up you know, weighing more, um, for various reasons. And so the, the car was a bit heavier than it was last year. Uh, but in the short amount of time that we had this summer to try different things, we, we were able to make a radial tire work. And that's, so that's impossible. We were... You can't make a stick work on radials. <laughs> that's what they tell me. So yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty, uh, exciting for us to try and do something that people are, uh, a little shunned about, but, I will say we were not the only ones there with a stick car with a radial. There was, uh, I think, a guy in C-Stick. Uh, there was a, a white wagon uh, that runs, I think, R-Stick. Uh, he had a stick on, a uh, uh, radial tire on it as well. And uh, so it's it's certainly not impossible, but you just you just got to you just, just got to work on it. You just got to figure it out. And you know, for us, the stick, uh, the radial tire was definitely worth something once we got it on there. Nice. Well, that something was... I've yet to try. That was probably yeah. a kind of a head turner that it was pretty cool. You guys could come back and do it a second year in a row. I mean, it's, I'm sure, uh, yeah, you guys have spent a lot of time working on it more than just a lot of time and not be able to test it all season. It's pretty impressive. That they could come down and lay a couple licks out like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would say for me personally, I'm, I'm really involved in, in kind of the engine development and trying to make sure we can be good on the power side. Uh, that's really where I put a lot of my focus, but, um, the, the, the hard part with those cars and us particularly is, is the weight and, and getting down to a stick minimum is, is a challenge. You know, it, Caleb is a smaller guy. He's probably my size. Uh, he definitely looked like he even, you know, worked to, to lean himself out a little bit more this year. So, um, we just don't have any way to put weight in the car where you need it to make it work in a stick. Uh, it's a way better B stick car. We can place weight where we want it, where we need it. And the car can work consistently in B stick. We just happen to have two good runs uh, on Thursday at Indy uh, in a stick and it, and it worked out pretty well, but I, I certainly wouldn't 
suggest running the radials and trying to run fast at a, you know, a local combo, I don't think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. So, right. Which is, makes it hard to test too, because if you try to go to a local track on a Friday night and test your stick shift radial car, you might have a, a little bit of problems. Oh yeah, absolutely. So anybody in a stick that wants to try to run radials, maybe give Randy a call over there at Fast Shocks, and <laughs> that can't help you or can't hurt you at all, right? Yeah, give him a shout. It's uh, it <clears throat> the, we're fortunate. Uh, we've got a couple tracks close to us. That sorry about this sun, by the way. We've got a couple tracks close to us that, um, you know, we're, we have some relationships with the owners. Uh, last year before we went to Indy, literally the day before my dad left, we rented an eighth mile track and we made like 10 runs trying stuff before he left. Uh, and again, this summer before we went to Indy, we rent and rent, went and rented another quarter mile track. And so uh, to me, Unfortunately, that's the the best and almost the only way to do it if you want to really have a good test session because, you know, a lot of test days, it's full of, you know, street tires and, and you know, bracket cars that, you know, maybe a little hard on the starting line and they're not going to prep it really well for you because they, they know their audience. Um, and so, you know, if you can rent the track or if you can go in on a track rental with a few people, um, you know, you can make sure the track's prepped right. You've got a good surface to work with um, and you can certainly learn a lot. Indeed, right? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. There was uh, a lot of interesting things that happened at Indy. Um, you know, Emmons, they definitely had a great weekend there. I don't know, has that ever happened before? I don't think, I don't know that two brothers have ever won on the same The day. Richardson. I think Edmund and Scotty Richardson have pulled it off before. Did they? <clears throat> that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember what year it was, but... I'm 99% sure that they've pulled it off. Um, and then the Emmons brothers, I mean, they're just, they have great driving skills, great equipment, yeah. and I'm sure a great, you know, they have a great sponsorship too. Uh, they're just great people. They are. They're they're. I, I was happy to see them do it. I mean, I know it meant a lot to them, obviously. Uh, but, you know, like you said, they're, they're great drivers. They, they dedicate a lot of their time to being good at it. And, uh, you know, they have the right people in place to make sure that they can make sure their cars are well prepped and, and they did a great job. The only other family that I remember, like in the final was the Waldos, you know, Eric and Jim being in the final together in stock at the U.S. Nationals, which, I mean, as a father and son, I mean, that'd be kind of, you know, the ultimate dream. Uh, and they made that happen. So that was pretty cool. But it sounds like uh, there's maybe a little more controversy <clears throat> I'd like to touch on, maybe not necessarily with naming names because I wasn't there and I kind of feel like you should have both sides to it, but how about uh, the class runoff shenanigans there where somebody's car, was allowed, somebody's car was allowed to go down the track with another driver before class runoffs? Um, yeah, happened? I've heard a little bit about that and it's, you know, at the end of the day, I, if I were, if I were the gentleman that lost, you know, I'd be frustrated. Um, I have no idea if, or when any of the other participants, you know, made a suggestion or talked about it at all. I have no idea. Um, I do know that it's NHRA's call and if they weren't smart enough to put their foot down about it, at the end of the day, they're the blame. I mean, it's their sandbox and, you know, I'd be, I'd be frustrated at the situation, but, you know, hopefully I would be directing my frustration at NHRA because even if the guy, if the competitor asked to, to let somebody else, you know, make a, a run and get comfortable in the car, NHRA should have said no, if that was the case. And since they said yes, that's, it is what it is. They right. made the call. Or, or perhaps wait it until after the class final the class <clears throat> runoff to do such a thing for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what we're talking about. Um, we can present this in a act, you know, completely uh, from a neutral perspective here. We're just going by what we read on classracer.com. Yeah. Uh, the participant's uh, name, Tony Fagnelli, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, he has an FSAA uh, Copo and he was to run Jeff Lane. Um, in an FSAA Cobra Jet. And before their class runoff, um, Tony Pedragon 
took uh, Jeff Lane's Cobra Jet down the track for an exhibition run, if I'm correct, and I believe made a great pass. And then Jeff Lane cooled the car down, pulled it up for the class runoff against Tony, and they ran each other. And Tony is arguing that that was unfair, that that car got an extra time run uh, when he did not. So ensuing that the whole you know, decision there by NHRA to allow Tony Pedregon to go down in a car that was still in competition uh, just seems a little off, if you will. So yeah. that's what we're discussing right here. Yeah, I think, I mean, class at Indy is a pretty big deal, and it just probably adds a little salt to the wound. Um, it seems like there's always some drama that follows people that win a lot. I mean, that's... People... It's kind of the the story too i mean there's you know there's people i think there's always a little bit of a, a, a i don't know if it's a stigma or what it is about people that win a lot i mean there's you could go down the list of people that have won you know multiple championships whether it's divisional national or just won a lot a lot of races and there's always going to be you know some level of i don't i don't know that it's necessarily jealousy but it's you know people want to attain that level of success and they see you know something that somebody may have done along the way and then they get you know really upset about it for one reason or another um, I mean, I get it. Like I, everybody wants to win and everybody, especially at Indy class, I completely understand it. It's a big deal. Um, that's really the last spot in stock super stock where, you know, you feel like class really means something. Uh, and it's like the one opportunity you're probably going to get to run somebody in your class. So I get it. Um, but there's certainly, you know, a, a little bit of that stigma that follows people that win a lot and do really well. Um, you know, they have a little bit of that air around them. What's kind of interesting is, like I said, being completely new to the sport and completely new to class racing in the last, you know, basically the last year was my first year in a car. Um, it's interesting because <clears throat> now all you hear about is the way it used to be, the old days, the old days. You know, like now <laughs> there's been a few tech things. There's not really much tech. Um, yeah, some cars get tore down. And then, like, even, like, the regional, like, it takes a lot of people to tear things down. But there's just not from what I've heard stories of the old days where if you had the wrong emblem or, you know, mm -hmm. it had the wrong taillight for the year your class claiming it to actually get disqualified to now, yeah. there was another instance this year where a guy's literally running an illegal motor in his <clears> car <throat> wins zero set on it. I mean, he was at an NHRA event. Nothing happened. Um, from what I've heard, just completely drove through tech, went and started changing the car to try to make it closer to legal, got caught. Nothing has ever been said. Like, like how how do you keep class legitimate i mean that's the question it's crazy it's i i'm, I'm kind of with you i mean i think there's a lack of enforcement if you will um that i it, it's a, it's an effort it's an effort by nhra it's an effort to have people that want to be able to keep the the spirit of the class alive um and it's work. Like I get it. There's, there's only a handful of tech guys that, that have that knowledge of, of what to do, what to look for, how to keep that class integrity alive. Um, and unfortunately a lot of those guys are retiring, you know, you know, sadly we lost in division five, uh, a tech guy by the name of Wayne Lewis, that was incredibly knowledgeable. He understood this stuff as good or better than, you know, 90% of the tech guys out there division three, uh, as, as a guy named Travis Miller, they're both very well understanding of the class. They understand what's happening. They understand what to look for. Uh, and, you know, sadly, from what I can see, NHRA has almost kind of started tying their hands in the last couple of years. They, they couldn't enforce the rules the way they should have been. Um, and I think there's been occasions where, you know, both Travis and or, or um, Wayne would have disqualified somebody. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's political. I don't know if it's, you know, fear of lawsuits or whatever it is. Uh, NHRA just kind of lets it slip through the cracks. And that's sad because, you know, years ago, like you're talking kind of the good old days, um, there was such a difference in tech. I mean, I, <clears throat> in the, when my dad started racing stock eliminator in the early eighties, you know, late seventies, early eighties, you know, he, he run it up at a divisional event and he had to tear down. Like if you were in the final of a divisional event, stock or super stock, you had to tear down after the race. Now I don't want to go back to that. 
I don't want to, you know, get to the finals <clears throat> six o'clock at night and you got to tear down and then you got a 10 hour drive ahead of you. Like I, I get it. That's not fun either, but there's gotta be some, well, some in between. We could do something. We could seal the motor up right there. Uh, when my dad used to tech, I mean, my father started racing super stock in the uh, mid to late eighties. And he did in fact, win a very big, a divisional it was the Budweiser Superstock Nationals at Maple Grove and they started tearing his car down uh took his carburetor off took he was getting pictures with his you know case of Budweiser and and just had the day of his life I mean yeah the guy's a good guy he had his stick shift car his best light of the day was probably like a back then it was probably <clears throat> like a 580 who knows and he just had a yeah. great day and they were tearing everything apart, and then they finally measured the wheelbase, and it was out of whack by a quarter of an inch, and they disqualified him. They even took his case of Budweiser away from him. Oh, man, so, that's going for the heart. <laughs> it, was, it was a sad day. I was, I was five years old, and I still remember it, and I just felt so bad for him. I mean, talk about taking the wind out of your sails. Like It was just the, the day that everybody dreams of where everything just falls into place for you. I think even Sal Biondo read lit to him, if I remember correctly. I was so young, but, you know, it – it's definitely different then than it was now, but I do remember asking him at a young age, daddy, what's that orange paint all over your carburetor, all over your, you know, manifold, whatever. So if they wanted to, I think they could, you know, what, as we say, seal the motor up. If you don't want to tear it down at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday, but that driver, <clears throat> you know, or if he goes overly fast or something yep, should have to be, torn down before an entire combo gets hit with horsepower. Well, and I think, you know, even there, there's enough stuff you can check easily. I mean, you could do, you know, a quick part number check and lift check and carburetor checks and stuff like that. That's like a mini teardown. You can do that quick and easy. I mean, especially, you know, if there's guys that are, are really going fast and they're really suspected of doing something different. I mean, if, if people are suggesting they have a bigger motor than they really do or something, pump it. It's what we do in modified. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a perfect science, but it's pretty darn close. I mean, if, if a guy's claiming a 340 Mopar and somebody thinks he's got, you know, a, a 440 pump it, you know, he could have the right heads and, and everything in the short block doesn't look any different in the outside. Do some of those things. Um, it's a, you know, it's a deterrent check the casting also. numbers. Right. It's a deterrent. If you go in there with fear that something could be checked, it's, you're going to approach, you know, that, race uh probably a lot differently than some guys may be approaching them right now yeah yeah i think it's uh you know the the tech inspections are getting less and less and you know guys are probably getting less and less fearsome of anything bad happening yeah and it wouldn't take it wouldn't take a lot i mean i like to think most people are pretty honest but there's probably a lot of gray areas that are being and that's fine but you know, when the intake's been, it's easy to pull an intake off. It's easy to check carburetors. It's easy to check lift. Like you said, some of that stuff is just basic. Yeah. And even, you don't have to do every race. But, I mean, at least if there's a chance or a spot, like as an association, they should pick three races. These are what we're going to do. Bring in some extra staff to help with it. Yeah. You know, especially like in mid-season, people aren't going to probably change a lot. But just do a random teardown of a few cars, check a few things. For yeah. sure, NHRA, anytime you add horsepower, that should be a teardown. Absolutely. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's and even a if you trigger issue. a combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if you trigger a combo, I think they should do some type of a mini teardown, make sure it's got the right cylinder heads, throttle body, carburetor, whatever it is, you know, I mean, they could even come with a simple bore scope and just go down the manifold and see if, if the thing has ported heads, you know, right. visibly ported heads, uh, you know, simple things like that just to do at least a smoke test. And the biggest thing is just to have a little teeth behind it. You know, there needs to be, yeah, if you're gonna, if you're, if somebody's legitimately going to bypass tech, cheat, I mean, to get caught with something that might be off a little bit, to me, is a little bit different than just completely. I'm illegal. I'm not stopping. See you later. You know, there was an instance <laughs> of that last year where guys going killer fast. They want to tear him down. He just packs up and leaves. You know, see you yeah. next year. You got to do something right. to make that has to have completely avoid some of that stuff. Right. Yeah. The uh, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Uh just to hear the way it used to be and now it's not. And I think it does hurt class. I mean, we have a great thing going. The associations are keeping it alive, but at the end of the day, a lot of the people that have been around have been around, you know, it's not a young man's sport. There's not a lot of people getting into it. 
And no. the people coming in, it's hard enough to do everything right and try to do things the right way. And then it just, it's kind of discouraging. Yeah, we're struggling to go fast. And here there's somebody completely cheating. You yeah. know, and there's no repercussions. It's just, it's, I think to keep <clears throat> class alive and legitimate, they need to do a better job. And I understand, you know, in the 80s, uh, uh, 80s, 90s, 70s for sure. Back then, a lot of guys did all their own stuff. They built their own engines. You know, they buy heads from this guy and parts from that guy, and they put them together. I would beg to to believe, or I would believe, a majority of next generation stock super stock racers or new stock super stock racers that are coming in and were never exposed to it before, most of these guys couldn't put their motor back together. So if they got tore down, they're going home. Unless right. they can find somebody at the track that's going to help them. Help them, yep. So and some guys don't even bring tools. To be, <laughs> yeah, tools, gaskets, <laughs> nothing, you know. Because <clears throat> uh, to this point, they've never even been under the assumption that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. If you don't go to Indy right now, the, the assumption in stock super stock, if you don't go to Indy, you're never getting torn out. Right. Period. And there are guys that do so, go super fast, and you watch them go fast. And you wonder why they never go to Indy year after year after year. Yeah. <laughs> We're fast everywhere but there. But the AHFS yeah. will be in effect. Now, uh, a man said trigger a combo. Now, for anybody that's listening, trigger a combo. If a combo goes one second under two times, um, qualifying eliminations and or class eliminations, that will trigger a, re- a <clears throat> review of that combo for the year. If the average of that combo is 85 under or quicker, that combo will get hit with horsepower. At the end of the year, if a combo goes 1.2 seconds under one time, that combo will get hit with horsepower Tuesday morning. Correct? Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah, I I like the AHF, AHFS in spirit. The, the big flaw in it from my perspective is there's no incentive to ever go fast. The way, I mean, short of the only time, you know, a stick's a good a good example for us. Like we have a, it's a good combination. It's a good combination to begin with. You know, I don't think it's extraordinarily underfactored or something like that. I think the a stock automatic is, is harder too. it's too difficult in an LS with a, you know, an automatic it's, it's a little favorable with the stick. I'll agree to that. But at the same time, I mean, we work very hard on our stuff and we've, we work on details that, you know, people probably don't work on. And and that's part of why our stuff runs really well. That being said, I'm not going to go to a points race and run 120 under just to be number one qualifier. There's no incentive to it. There's no points. There's no money. There's no nothing. We've been number one qualifier dozens of times in our lives. Like I, I understand if nobody's, if somebody's never done it before, it's a big deal. It's, it's a, it's an accomplishment to be number one qualifier, but after you've done it enough times and you get slapped on the wrist, why would you keep doing that until NHRA pays money, gives points, does something to make it incentivized to go number one or number one through five or whatever the numbers are, people are not going to go out there and voluntarily slit their wrist. You're going to be sandbagging. They're going to put throttle stops on or add weight or whatever the case may be. There's no reason that somebody should, Outside of a heads up in eliminations, people are not going to voluntarily do that to themselves. And I, right. I, I would go on the other side of that too, saying that when they've they basically got rid of the fact that you can never have horsepower reduced. You know, as a 2000 yeah. Camaro with an LS1, that's that's <laughs> been hit pretty hard, and you basically completely eliminate the effectiveness of a whole class of cars. Yeah. You know, I think if they, yeah, it's a lot of work. They have to review it. I mean, it's, they have all the data. It's not really that hard. It's probably just the Excel spreadsheet, but you they just made a wait period now, two years, right? If something gets hit, it can't get reduced for at least two years. I don't think it I can believe. ever be reduced the way I understood it. I, I well, kind of read it the same way as Brian. I thought it was a two year wait period. I can double check that, but you're running a category that's never gonna get reduced because you have way too many guys. If you got everybody on board running that combo to just stay yeah. fifty five under or less, See, which, look, they'll look. never survive a race if they you know, if they did that, see, I think there's still too many of those cars, Mm -hmm. but that's the thing. Like people give up on complete combos. I'm sure it's not just that there's some cars that made great race cars that people aren't running now. 
and that's kind of what's made adds a lot of expense to the sport too like there's getting fewer and fewer less cars that are good entry level that you can get in without spending piles of money yeah you know and it's to make class you know for young people to come into a class class racing and be competitive it's hard like there's getting to be fewer and fewer easy classes that you can get in and be competitive right off the bat yeah the easy class quote-unquote easy class would be like a q stock automatic but you're easy to go under the index class car is not going to be very easy to win in the eliminator and that's going to just you know frustrate you right. as well you're going to yeah. be going out first and second round everywhere because if there's a two mile an hour breeze you're going to slow down a, a tenth and a half um you got to have a winnable car and right winnable cars are expensive i it, mean if you can strike well, if lightning can strike and you can find a, a decent middle of the road you know m and something i mean i'm in k stock automatic with my mustang and that's that's difficult enough and it's not an overly expensive car you know, I I would be right up there with you. Ford would have made something that was worth a damn, um, <laughs> that was fuel injected. Like I I have thought about buying a you know a ABC stock automatic you know Firebird Camaro you know something that I can run with and chase people down. And I love tuning fuel injection. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the the easy the quote unquote easiest way to get in right now is to go buy a. Cobra Jet Copo drag pack car, but man, they're, you know, that's a, it's a substantial, substantial investment up front. hundred thousand dollar investment. Right. Right. And, and I mean, you can argue it both ways. You could, you could take your car that you have today, you know, or, or, or Brian's car and you could spend a hundred thousand dollars trying to make it a, a one second under car also. So you either pay now or pay later, depending right. on what your goals are. Yep. <laughs> but you know, it's it's hard for a lot of people to come up and be able to write that check. I well, get it. I I couldn't. And there's the frustrating part is you know there's people with those cars out there that are they're running them they're but they're managing their class better. But like it's bring I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight. You know I pull up next to yeah say Al Cordo with his 15 Camaro. He's probably got what sixty horsepower on me, and we weigh pretty much the same. Like, yeah, it's it's tough. Like, you end up doing a little bit of class dodging, but it's also motivation. I mean, you know, he lost one of our association races. He lost the final <clears throat> to a sixty, I think, nine Camaro. You know, yep. so anybody's anybody has their day. Anybody can be beat. But man, those yeah. heads up races are what make this great. But man, it's kind of tough when you get into some of those combinations. <laughs> right it is it, and i'll i mean openly say a b and c or double a through b c you could you could keep on going down the alphabet but you know a b and c they're extremely expensive classes to run at the top like you've you've got old cars that you know guys are continually finding ways to make them more power or make more power make them more efficient and that comes with money so i mean you know you i would at this day and age, you wouldn't think a, a, a 396, 375, or 69 Camaro could be that fast. But, you know, Jim Jim Boudreau and, and the Line Brothers have figured out how to make those cars fast. And he's arguably the fastest B-stock automatic car in the country. Or, you know, if he's not, he's one of the top two. He's right up there. Um, so, I mean, it can be done, but, you know, Jim spends a lot of time testing. They spend a lot of time working on their combinations. and. And that's what it takes, but I really don't know. I mean, in, to your point, Brian, you've got, you know, the, the 2015 Camaro, it's still a good combination. It was, it was a new car. And, and to be honest, when, when new combinations are created, it's, it's a little bit of a Liberty depending on how the factory, you know, is working with NHRA to, to get that combination approved at, at what, what horsepower factor, um, you know, Chevrolet, I think they're a little bit modest in their uh, horsepower advertised horsepower factors for the, for the combination. So a 2015 Camaro with the 376 LS three, I think they call it. Um, you know, I don't remember what it's factory rated at like 400 or 420 or something like that. Um, you know, I think those motors make more than that from the factory. And so the way NHRA formulates those, they'll take whatever it is like three, uh, 400 and some horsepower and they take like a, a, an 85 percent 
rule of the factory advertised horsepower. So I think when that combination came into stock, it was factored at like 360 or somewhere in there. <laughs> and, you know, by comparison, uh, like a 2019 or 2020 Dodge Challenger streetcar with a three, how big are those motors? Like a 380, 392. They were factored pretty high from the factory. You know, Dodge wanted to have a nice big horsepower factor tied to those cars. So when they came into NHRA and used the same 85% rule, they're factored at like three or 412 or 415 or something like that. So it's a, it's a motor that probably makes comparable power in stock eliminator format, but uh, you know, the factories for one reason or another, Dodge wanted to boast more power on, on their factory advertised horsepower. Chevrolet was a little bit more modest and it made it a better combination as soon as you came into stock. So there's that factory level of involvement and in kind of political game that that can make or break it before it even becomes a fact before it mm -hmm. becomes a classified car. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, for class to survive, we got to figure out how to get new people involved. Like, how are we going to get more cars to the party? Um, you look at the class, and I got introduced to class racing maybe by uh, the guy that kind of got me into drag racing and. He's like, oh yeah, you know, you can run these class races for good money, or you can bracket race it. And man, I just bracket racing's fun. It's a great way to get seat time, but it's hard to beat the people that are in class. Like, there's just about nobody I can show up to at their pit. Everybody's friendly, you know, the camaraderie. It's like a big family. And often it's just because yeah. misery loves company or what. But <laughs> it's hard pressed to find a greater group of people. But <clears throat> I mean, how do you get more people into the sport? And I think. You know, there has to be a way to come in and, you know, for the most part, everybody's pretty helpful and sharing tips. Hey, try this, try that. And that's been, what's really been beneficial for me. Um, yeah. But like, how do you get people started? I mean, like Mike, how did you get started into this world? I guess let's talk about you. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was born into it. I mean, my, my family started racing stock eliminator. My, my dad, you know, back in the, in the seventies in the Minneapolis area, there was two or three local tracks in the twin cities that, you know, as a high schooler or just out of high school, they could take their street car, drive over there, race Friday night, maybe put some slicks on it and race it, put your street tires back on and drive home. And, you know, that was a common thing. And I think it was that way almost from coast to coast at that time frame. you know, there was drag strips everywhere. And as time went on, you know, the, the strips closed down, they turned into housing developments and things of that nature. Um, so they became a little bit more spread out. Um, and so by the time I, you know, knew what was going on, I mean, I was, I was born and went to the racetrack, you know, the, the following spring, I was a December baby and, you know, by April or May I'm at the racetrack. And, but that being said, I mean, back then, I think it was, it was pretty affordable because people could get into it, you know, with cars they either already had, or, or, you know, a 69 Camaro wasn't worth sixty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty five. You know, it was it, it just was it didn't have that prestige yet. Um and so it, it was easier to get involved. So I I started as a young kid. My my parents were involved in stock eliminator racing from before I came along. And so they raced stock until nineteen eighty seven uh when he he sold his sixty nine Camaro and bought a uh nineteen eighty seven Oldsmobile Cutlass four four two. So at that time, <clears throat> that was, you know, nearly a brand new car. I think it was built in like 84 or five and, you know, it had gotten all the updates, new bumpers and trim and stuff to make it an 87 model. So it was a, it was a good car at the time. And so we started racing super stock in either 87 or 88. Um, and my dad raced that competitively into the early nineties. I got involved in junior drag racing at, I think nine. Um, and that was, you know, like any kid that's in junior drag racing today can tell you, it was a great entrance to the sport. It, it teaches you the fundamentals. It teaches you how to win and probably more importantly, it teaches you how to lose. And, um, I did it. I, I never did it at the level that a lot of kids do it at today. I mean, my junior dragster was a supplement to the stock super stock stuff we were doing. If they were racing juniors where we went, it could come along. We weren't going to a junior dragster race. Like my dad did not put our racing on hold for me to go race a junior dragster that that wasn't in the cards. And, and honestly, I didn't want it to be, I, I, I 
I wanted to race, but I wanted to, my dad to race. I wanted him to win. That was, that was way bigger deal to me. Um, so I got involved in junior drag racing at a young age. I raced it till, uh, I turned 16. So when I, when I first turned 16 is when I got into super stock, my dad and I kind of split the driving for the first year. Um, you know, I would try and race like a national open and, and some combo races and he would race the divisional national stuff. Cause obviously he had grade points and he could get in and, and I couldn't yet, but, um, and then after the first year, I think it was, he, he kind of stepped aside and, and let me start driving from that point. There was one year <clears throat> when he got out of our car, he drove a friend's car and, uh, it was a, a, a late friend of ours named Ray Kennedy. He was, man, he was a, a great family friend. He was a really, really great guy. Uh, we really, really enjoyed spending time with him. And, and he was, he was a guy that just, he loved having fun. You know, he, he bought the right stuff. He had a good car. He had a good combination. He had like, you know, a, a 90 Camaro, which I still argue is one of the best super stock cars there is, you know, an 82 to 92 Camaro, they work really well. And, um, so my dad got an opportunity to drive that for a year. Ray just kind of toted it around and went to the races that we went to. And, and that was when I won my first race. Uh, it, it was kind of a, a dream scenario. I was <clears throat> in high school. Our closest divisional event is in Brainerd, Minnesota. And I was, I had to have been a senior uh, that spring. So I, I drove, I drove to Brainerd. My parents drove the rig. Ray drove his rig. We're going to both race the cars. I qualified on Friday. I actually qualified number one in our car and set the national record. Saturday morning, I drove to the local high school in Brainerd and took my ACT test, <laughs> came back, finished qualifying, tore the motor down, everything passed. We got our national record. That was pretty cool. And then, uh, my dad and I were on opposite sides of the ladder and we made it down to the finals. And I raced my dad in the final of my first divisional event that I ever got to win. I raced my dad in the final and we had family. We just, for some reason, we had a whole bunch of family there that never come to a race. Like I had both of my grandmas there. One of them had never been to a race before and has never been to one since. <laughs> and on the other side, I had uh, my, my dad's mom was there, uh, uncles, cousins. It was it was the picture perfect win. And that was hands down still the most important win of my life to, to race my dad in the final. That was, that was the pinnacle. Do you think he let you win? <laughs> I, I, I jokingly said it, it was more financially advantageous of, for him to let me win. Cause he owned our car and he was going to get <laughs> most of that money. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. I we've raced, we've probably raced four or five times over the years. And I don't remember if he's ever beat me. We've had some good races, but I, I don't think he's ever beat me. I'm not sure. So would you say that's your most memorable win then is your first one there? Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was, that was the biggest win to me just because of the, the specialness of having my dad in the final with me. Um, that one's tough to beat. There's, there's, I've been fortunate to win some pretty cool races over the years, uh, but that one's still the top. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, anybody that's ever seen your team in the pits or on the track, like your mom's there all the time. Like it's pretty cool to yeah. see the whole family buy in. So here's the million dollar question you're going to the race next week and you can only take one parent with you. Who's going? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, that's a tough one. My mom loves racing too. Um, gosh, I, I mean, my dad, probably my dad, cause he's got a car that he can race too, I guess. So it'd be just both well, of us. Well, as a competitor next to you, I want you tough. to bring your dad because your mom is killer on lining you up and making sure everything works. So I want you to take your dad. Cause you need, I need all the help I can get if I'm pulling up next to you guys. So, oh man, it's funny. Cause you know, she's she's done, she's been around this her whole life too. And she's, she's so passionate about it. She's so excited about it. And she's, she's a really fierce competitor. She wants to win. She's, you know, we're there to win. And she gets so nervous about it. You know, she gets, it's like, as soon as the loudspeaker says, you know, super stock to the lanes, she has an instant stomach ache and she's, you know, nervous and, 
and so it it's it kind of takes the pressure off of me and, and <laughs> I don't know if it takes any pressure off my dad. He's, he's so laid back. He doesn't get nervous or at least to me, I I've never seen him really get nervous about anything or wound up. He's, he's pretty cool blooded when it comes to a lot of that. Uh, and, and even more so now than he was when I was a kid, but um, yeah, she seems to kind of take the brunt of the nerves for everybody. I'd have to say that's like probably the most important. That's like, I don't know, 80% of it right there. If you are a laid back, you can control your emotions. You don't get nervous before you go up there. You will have your fair share of wind lights and, uh, you know, a lack of screw ups, we'll say. Um, That's a big piece of this game right there. Good good for you and good for your dad. And it's great that your mom (laughs) takes that on for you because that, you know. I'm not going to lie. I get those first round jitters uh, when they, you know, call us up at a national event, stock to the lanes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we all do. I mean, I, if you don't, you, you probably don't really care what's happening. And that's right. not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm with you. I mean, emotional control to me is what separates the guys that win a lot from the guys that don't. Um, that's in the periods of my life where I've done really well, I can absolutely point back to it and say it was. I was more focused. I was less nervous. I was more prepared, uh, not necessarily like prepared with the car, just more prepared mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, I've, I've had some really good patches and really good streaks in my life and I've had some really bad ones. I mean, I, I was fortunate to start off, you know, at a young age and, and win a couple races and get the ball rolling. And I finished in the top 10 nationally a few times uh, you know, leading up to 2011. And I think at the end of that year, it was like, I forgot what I was doing. And I went seven or eight years before I won anything again. I mean, I have, I have friends that, you know, we joke about it today, but I think there was a season where I did not win first round once. Wow. I'd go to like 15 races and I lost first round every single time. And the problem is once it happens enough times, it's in your head and it's, it's really hard to get past it. Right. And, and I'll be honest, you know, I've, I've seen sports psychologists and that was probably one of the biggest helps for me is how do I get out of my own head? I know that I know how to physically do this and I know that we have the equipment to do this. What am I doing wrong? And that was, I can absolutely point back to the times in my life where I've done the best. I was involved with a sports psychologist on somewhat of a regular basis. And at this point in my life, I guess I, I, I must just be implementing it more consistently on my own. Uh, I haven't you know, had to work with any of them, but if you don't know they exist and if you're not looking for that, you're missing out. I mean, there's, if you think that every professional athlete or collegiate athlete is doing this on their own and they've got this, you know, insane confidence all the time. You're just lying to yourself. I mean, the, the guys that I worked with, you know, they were full-time working with university of Minnesota football teams and hockey teams and the wild teams. I mean, these people are out there and that it's their job to help you get out of your own head. Mm-hmm. Worth looking into for sure. Uh, everybody yeah. hear that audience. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I'd like to, uh... I could use one. <clears throat> <laughs> our whole goal on this podcast is like i said talk class racing tips tricks you know explain it i think class racing for dummies is kind of what i think of this being because as somebody new to the sport there's so many little things that are assumed so it's yeah. pretty cool that i appreciate you coming on mike and talking about your story and the uh yeah no doubt about it i mean the man's family there's never Maybe there's frustration, but you don't see it. There's always smiles. They're always very accepting. They're just great down-to-earth people. Um, I'd recommend anybody that needs suspension help with their car, give Randy a call at Fast Shocks there. You guys definitely have some of the best working cars I've seen leave. It's funny, you just you watch that car leave, and it just pisses you off. Because you know what? Sometimes you make it towards the end of the <laughs> rounds, you're going to be against one of those fast cars. So thanks for coming on, Mike. And the key, we're going to probably try to wrap this up just to keep it under two hours like we could talk about this forever but we gotta save something for another episode so i, I do want to extend some uh, well wishes to jimmy spell a uh, fellow super stock racer he was in gainesville this weekend and suffered a stroke uh was found unresponsive i believe in his 
trailer or motorhome on Wednesday morning and they rushed him to the hospital and we haven't had much update since. So get well, Jimmy Spell, fellow stick shift super stock racer. Thanks for having me on guys. I appreciate it. It was yeah. fun. Thanks for all your uh, wisdom, knowledge, and insight, Mr. Mans, and continue uh, continued success to you and your father and um, your whole family. Likewise, you guys too. Yeah, cool. Thanks, guys.